get started. Am I unmuted? Yes, I think I am. All right. Very good. <laughs> we begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, here we are, back in Revelation chapter 19. It's been some time. Uh, I, was, I was sick, and then we've had Christmas break, and so it, it's been a, around a month or so. I've entirely forgotten how to teach. It's a perishable skill. <laughs> but we'll give it a go anyway. To try to give us some context, we are simply in, in a long extended final scene, the final drama. <clears throat> of course, we have been looking at Revelation in terms of the cycles of seven. The, the seven bowls of God's wrath uh, are poured out in chapter 16. And then from that point on, um, it morphs into the great prostitute and the beast, chapter 17, the fall of Babylon, the beast and the harlot together, and the dirge that is sung on account of them by the folks of the world. Very fascinating given the liturgical dynamic ever present in Revelation that we are, with John, brought up into the ongoing cosmic liturgy and the singing of the saints and angels in heaven. And here, by contrast, by antitype, we have the earthly liturgy, the liturgy of woe. Now, historically speaking, and grounding us in, in historical terms, what we're really looking at is the, is the fall of Rome, the prediction of the fall of Rome, the prediction of the fall of the power of the ancient world, that power that so wet itself with paganism, uh, and fought against the church. And John, you know, revealed to John by God are these symbols and images, but this is the context into which he's speaking. And we don't want to lose sight of that. So that when we're, uh, when we're looking at what's going on in the world today, we don't need to have this sort of one-to-one sort of one -one really tight correlation of, okay, well, who's, who's Babylon today? What precisely is Babylon today? In a sense, that's the wrong question. What Revelation would answer is, well, it was the Roman Empire. What Revelation wants us to do, though, is to think and see theologically so that as we see the powers that rise, be they powers of religious tyranny or powers of false religion, we would identify them with evil and we would see them for what they are and we would see them in persecution of us and of the woman and her offspring, etc. So we would grab a hold of this imagery. We might even speak about it in this imagery, and yet we don't go so far as to, or maybe so fundamentalistic as to say, and this is precisely the fulfillment thereof. I mean, if that were true, then what John is writing to his first century audience is effectively nonsense, completely undiscernible to them. And if undiscernible, then why on earth would they have kept it? So again, we're reminded, of the, we're reminded of the historic audience of this document 
And the imagery and dynamics that it gives us, lenses, if you will, I've been using this, this metaphor, lenses, if you will, through which then we can see the world and say, oh, that's an, that's an awful lot like, like the beast of Revelation. I think of that, too, in terms of, you know, so, sort of, and I address this in one class, but this idea that's out there that getting the uh, vaccination might be a mark of the beast, you know, without it you can't buy or sell in this I haven't heard of anybody getting it in the forehead yet. <laughs> so, so there's some there's some literal issues there, and of course, of course, overly reading, you know, to, to, like, like that's a it's a great example that in the demonic scorpion-like creatures, you know, being referred to clearly as Apache helicopters or something like this. I mean, this these are examples of of how not to use Revelation, how not to read Revelation. But what can we do if the government, for example, said, hey, you can't buy or sell unless you do this? You could say, well, that's an awful lot like what John was talking about. And I think that that's a, I think that that's a key difference. I think that's a key difference. You can say here is, here is the, the state in tyrannical form, in form contrary to God's intent, and it's using its powers perversely once again, particularly its powers over our financial well-being, over our state in the, in the left-hand kingdom, as it were. Okay? So then I think it would be much more accurate, much more biblically sound to say, gosh, some of these dynamics are exactly the same. As opposed, do, you, do you see the subtle difference as opposed to saying this is the complete and perfect fulfillment of revelation? which Revelation really never intends. Okay, well, hopefully that's clear. I've been pondering on that longer than I should, and how best to articulate it. I'm still not sure I have it, but, but I, it's a key distinction. We can speak in, in, in these ways, in, in these lenses, in these words, frames, metaphors, images, visions that Revelation gives us. We can speak accurately without having to jump all the way, without needing to jump all the way to this, like, sort of, direct specific fulfillment. All right, so we are then in this, this final stage, Babylon, the fall of Babylon, the dirge of the people on earth, the, the liturgy of, of woe, all the people weeping and mourning. Yeah, it had me thinking more broadly too and I was laying there on my sick couch, not, not able to put thoughts together, just kind of rolling around things in your, in your mind. And I was thinking about that more broadly, how, how without Christ, without God, the whole liturgy of earth just becomes a liturgy of woe. I was thinking about that, how, and, and this has become more and more apparent to me the older I get. None of you are old yet, so you, you don't know what I'm talking about. But, but the, the, older, the older you get, uh, the less, I think the less you see any good in the world. Because you even, see, you even see things like births, which were these happy ultimate advances, like, yeah, but that just means a death is coming. And the death ostensibly has the last word. Or you look at something like a, like a wedding, like the happiest event on earth. And anybody who's married is like, yeah. <laughs> totally the happiest. <laughs> so, so you take these, 
you take even the moments, and again, this is what we're doing is we're meditating on the we're meditating on the world apart from the revelation of God. Just strictly what you see is what you get. No enlightenment on the basis of God's word or his grace and mercy in Christ or the sending of the Holy Spirit. Not, we're trying to we're trying to limit for that. Sort of the way that I think Ecclesiastes does its theology is, okay, let's let's just look at what's right in front of us and then speak truthfully about that. I mean, what what good is there that isn't not only tainted with evil, but bears within it that seed of evil that is ultimately its undoing and its tragedy, such that it's better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all? Why would that be the case? Why on earth would that be the case? I mean, here, here, I, think, here I think something like Buddhism is probably closer to the truth. Like where you, where like the, the the proper expression of that would be to utterly lose one's humanity and simply not feel, because in feeling there is in feeling and desiring there is suffering, and who on earth would want to suffer? And all of life is, is suffering. But boy, do you give up your whole humanity, and you become you become monstrous in your inability to, to suffer. And if Christ shows us one thing, it's the necessity of suffering, and that the shape of love in a fallen world is precisely suffering. That's why tangentially, when those we love die, we never go through the stages of grief and say, okay, well, that's it. I got through all seven stages, now I'm done, I'm done grieving. We never, because love simply changes shape and changes form. Now, enlightened by, enlightened by who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what he's done for us in Christ Jesus, the, se- the sending of the Holy Spirit, and what God intends for us as a human race, now we begin to see the world through a different lens, and now it's like everywhere we look, we can't help but see his goodness. So you kind of have this, like this, these bifocal lenses, right? You can, you can see everything in sort of the way of pure darkness. I think what, what Luther was getting at with the Deus Absconditus, with the hidden God, where, where God is hidden, it's just, it's a horrific kind of existence. You don't have to imagine, you don't have to go very far to imagine this is, is hell. I mean, how could hell get much worse? And then, and then with, with Christ, with that other vision, you begin to see the, okay, so take the birth or the marriage and, and you see the earthly suffering, the earthly death, the earthly sorrow, but all of that's transformed. All of that's transformed in very complex ways, but just to treat it ham, ham-fistedly, I mean, one is bor- born into earthly life in order to die, but that, that death is a second birth, is a much more profound birth. And to be married, but to suffer in marriage, on account of another sinner, of course, <laughs> to, to suffer in marriage on account of another sinner, what more, what more Christ-like activity is there? What more what more foundational component or manifestation of love is there in this fallen world that's transformed into the suffering in the image of Christ? All our relationships are reflections of that, of course. I mean, child to parent, parent to child. All, our, all the fundamental vocations are reflections of this reality. And so it's all colored and it's all made, it's all made uh, meaningful and poignant and we can see, though not fully, we can see what God intends by it and we begin to entrust ourselves to him and then we, what's restored to us is joy and what's, restored to, what's given to us is a new creation. I mean, in the old creation, someone's born and then they die. Someone's married, they fight, and death separates them. But in the new creation, you can see the light of Christ shining through all of it and triumphing in the end. 
the resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth. So, so it changes. Like what is, what is apart from God simply a liturgy of sorrow here on earth? Because of God, because of the incarnation, because of the invasion of, of heaven down to earth, we have, a, we have the dawn of a new creation, even in our midst. So we can already begin to see and perceive. And it's, it's glorious. It's why the angels sang at the birth of Christ, because they sang famously at the dawn of creation. Job tells us this. And they sing at the birth of Christ because it's the dawn of a new creation. We can already have eyes to see that new creation peeking through the old creation dying and falling away. Now, all of, uh, all of this sermonizing, whether you find it valuable or not, is really, in my own words, the way the theology of Revelation is driving us. Because as we see, as we pass from the fall of Babylon into uh, the new chapter, chapter 19, we're going to see rejoicing in heaven. And what are we going to see next in chapter 19? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Really, really the climax and inauguration of the new creation. In the same way we can sort of see the old creation and the new creation. And the new creation is, is peeking through and we struggle to see it. And it's constantly being eclipsed by the darkness and the light fights back and it's revealed to our eyes again who God is, who we are, what he's doing. And our faith is strengthened. Finally, finally, when all the evil in the old creation is put away forever, there is nothing but the new. And the essence of the new is the incarnation and crucifixion. The essence of the new um, has its counterparts in the resurrection and the ascension. It's the joining of God with man. At first, redemptively, and then in a way of exaltation and glory such that we are united with him in his glory. All right, well, those are, some of the, those are some of the themes, in my own words, that we're going to be seeing emerge as we, as we look at chapter 19 and following. All right, before we begin, any questions or any thoughts you've had? I know we haven't been together for some time, so anything that's been ruminating that uh, you'd like to ask or make a comment on? All right, off we go. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So here is heaven's answer to the lament, to the lament of the earth. Heaven rejoices. And the content of that rejoicing is salvation. Now what is the shape of salvation here? Salvation as the casting out of all evil. That's the shape of salvation. So it's the final, it's the final freedom from Pharaoh. It's the final freedom from the dragon and the two beasts. And you remember that second beast changes form. That second beast is also the false prophet and also the prostitute. 
So as we hit verse 2, we narrow, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitutes. We narrow to this specific aspect or entity of the anti-trinity who corrupted the earth with him, her immorality. So here is, here is false religion, lying, the unholy spirit. <clears throat> and has, God has, avenged on her the blood of his servants. And here finally is the answer to the martyr's prayer. We're going to start getting some inclusio type stuff, some themes from the beginning re-emerging. And early, early on, if you remember, under the throne, the martyrs are crying out to God, how long? How long until you avenge our blood? Here in chapter 19, they finally answer, you have avenged it. Again, especially in context of the Old Testament prophets, who is martyring them? The people of God or pagans? The people of God. And are they doing it because they know they're wicked and they're wantonly wicked? Or are they doing it because they think that they're right and correct and godly? They think that they're doing it because they're right and correct and godly. That these people are troublemakers. These prophets are troublemakers, disturbers of the peace, naysayers, bearers of bad news. And they need to be taken out. Jesus laments this, of course, wailing over uh, Jerusalem, who, who stones the prophets, etc. So, so again, in terms of Old Testament imagery, the great prostitute once more takes shape here of what is the opposite or antitype of God's people, what is the opposite or antitype of the church, the false church that persecutes the saints of God, that, that uh, persecutes and puts them to death. All right, so then that specifies or narrows God's vengeance and, and ties it in nicely with Revelation chapter 6 and the, uh, and the martyrs under the throne. Okay, now this group who is singing from heaven, this great multitude, once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And I submit to you once more that if this bothers us, this idea of the saints of God rejoicing over the punishment of the wicked, then we probably ought to rearrange some things until it doesn't. <laughs> because the saints in heaven express no lament or mourning or consternation or conflict. It's just like these were the sworn enemies of God and of God's people. They made, they made their choice. They rejected his grace. They preferred darkness rather than light. This is their end. So be it. And in fact, beyond so be it, but hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Verse 4, and the 24 elders, again, you see aspects that were really the foundation of which were really laid down in the early chapters of Revelation. They're, they're repeating here as we come to a climax. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. 
And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now, we know the one who is seated upon the throne. That in Revelation is exclusively or almost exclusively the Father. We've also seen the Lamb in the midst of his throne. We've seen his coronation, his ascension into heaven. We've seen this in a couple of different ways. We've seen his ascension into heaven and his coronation. So this voice coming from the throne saying, whose voice do you think this is? The voice of Jesus. It's the voice of the Son. Thus, praise our God, calling all the saints in heaven along with angels and archangels, uh, elders, four living creatures, calling upon them to worship the Father, which of course the Son does, even teaching us to pray our Father. So here you see, here you see the, uh, what is often called the economy of the Trinity or the inner workings of the Trinity. So in all likelihood, in all likelihood, um, this is the voice of Christ. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. The study note makes an interesting point. I'll commend it to you. The study note on chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. The heavenly chorus praises God for the collapse and destruction of the great prostitute Babylon. Some may be reluctant to join in this praise, still feeling sympathetic to Babylon and thus exhibiting a shameful self-centeredness. But Christ frees us from tyranny's grip and promises to share the spoils of his victory with us. Thus, we can heartily join in this praise now and forever. And then a prayer, Holy Spirit, move my heart and voice to join in this great hallelujah chorus, both here on earth and then forever in heaven. Amen. Well said, faithful to the text. Okay, John, for a second time, if you look back at verse 1, you'll see that John begins this segment with, After this I heard, and now here in verse 6, Then I heard once more. So the ear here is the chief organ. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, parallel to verse 1, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Ah. Now, the many waters has been referred to as, as God's voice, and here it's an interesting association with the saints, because it's the saints in heaven, the great multitude in heaven who are speaking. And so I, th I don't think it's going too far as to say that the voice of the saints and the voice of God have become one voice, and that that's sort of the subtle interplay going on here. The, uh, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, of course, factors into the evidence of what could have possibly been a fourth set of seven. If you recall back the seven thunders that John seems to see their content, but he's told not to write it down, not to reveal it. It's a very mysterious, very intriguing part of Revelation and what is meant. And of course, then this factors into the data set of trying to interpret that. But I think, I think rather than kind of go off on that tangent, we'll simply let it stand that in this case, plainly read, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, again, most frequently associated with the voice of God, is here associated with the voice of the heavenly multitude. I don't want to wax too deeply on it, but it's like, it's like in the bondage of the will, 
this now is perfection where the saints, the will of the saints and the will of God is one. And the voice of the saints and the voice of God is one. That seems to be indicated here. All right. Well, they are crying out. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteousness of Christ. Nope. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, are those two things necessarily contradictory? No. How is it that our deeds are made righteous in the first place? By the righteousness of Christ, covered in the righteousness of Christ. That's how they're pleasing and acceptable in God's sight. Um, so those things aren't mutually exclusive. But I read it in such a way simply to make the point that the text itself lays the emphasis on the deeds of the saints. That's where the text itself lays the emphasis. So, so it, you know, I think, it does, I think it does us very little good to demean good works as such. You, you find, you can hardly open a page in the New Testament and put your finger down on it randomly and not find some sort of praising of good works. There are, there are occasional texts that have a specific purpose in mind that sort of demean good works, good works that are used to justify oneself before God, that kind of thing, that attitude needs to be attacked because it's sinful in and of itself. Hmm. But, the, uh, but, the, but the, the trend in latter Lutheranism, like 20th and 21st century Lutheranism, to just sort of like outrightly demean good works or to, you know, if they even come up in the context of one's preaching or teaching, if one were to exhort good works or extol good works, like, well, this person doesn't get the gospel. Well, then St. John doesn't get the gospel either. So, so this is interesting. This is interesting. This section is so rich. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Okay. So again, all glory belongs to God. It's not like we're claiming our works have merited anything. Now, this is, this then is, um, why is it the marriage of the Lamb? Why is it the marriage of the Lamb? What's the imagery of the Lamb in Revelation? Remember when we were introduced to him, how does he look? He stands and yet as one having been slain. So you see his wounds. You see his blood. And then in Revelation 12, where we sort of, recap and re-envision this, this central truth. Remember the saints of God, they, they overcome the dragon how? By the blood of the lamb, by the word of testimony, by the word of witness concerning the lamb. Okay, so then as we 
as we see the lamb here, what's being brought to mind is that sacrificial image. It's not merely the, the marriage of the Son of God or the marriage of the Son of Man, but rather the marriage of the Lamb. Central to that marriage motif is his self-giving, his self-offering, his blood cleansing us. And of course, Paul does this all for us in Ephesians. But this is at the root of the vision of the marriage. Now, in marriage, what is, it, what is happening in marriage? Marriage takes us, first of all, marriage takes us all the way back where? Biblically speaking. All the way to the garden. All the way to mankind before we fell into sin and ruined it all. Now sin has been put away and what is restored? Marriage. But marriage looks what? Utterly transformed and transcendent. Something of which earthly, earthly marriage at its best can only sort of force shadow and typify. Um, but marriage itself then becomes transformed. This is one of the, this is one of the and, and this is an open question. It's technically a theologically, a dogmatic open question. I'm not asserting otherwise. But this is, this is probably the best reason for thinking that earthly marriages don't continue in heaven. Simply because what the earthly marriage was isn't anything compared to the marriage of the saints and Christ. In other words, in other words the very best parts, you know, so, so if Juliana were to pass before me, the very best parts, the, very, the things I loved most about her and, and the, the intimacy and unity that we shared that God gave to us, um, at its very best, that's not what the very least in heaven is, that all the saints share and we all share together with Christ. You see, you see what I'm saying? There's far greater unity, intimacy, etc. in heaven in this, great, in this great cosmic vision of marriage. So, so there's all kinds of ways we can go with this, but suffice it to say this climax of Revelation and climax of, of the New Testament and really all of the scriptures takes us all the way back to the beginning to marriage and to it all falling apart, in essence, because of the husband and the wife, and now it all being brought together because of the new husband and the new wife, the lamb and the bride. God can tell a good story, and God can make that story a reality and history and uh, what we are experiencing and will continue to experience. Okay, so the marriage of the lamb and in marriage, the essence of marriage is that the two become one, one flesh. The two become one flesh. Now, this is a mystery, and, and why a part of the reason why the word sacrament simply comes from the Latin word sacramentum or whatever it is, comes from the, comes from the Greek word mysterion. And this just means mystery. 
generally, I mean, there's tons of mysteries. There's tons of sacraments. The Trinity is a sacrament. When you really just limit yourself to the biblical mode of speaking, the Trinity is a sacrament. It's a mystery. The Incarnation's a sacrament because it's a mystery, right? Any, anything that isn't immediately explicable and understandable is a mystery. And in this sense, marriage is a mystery too because even though the two become one flesh, do you see it with your eye? I realize I missed a great opportunity for a joke there that marriage is a mystery. And, <laughs> and wives a mystery to their husbands and husbands a mystery to their wives. But, but no, the, the two become one flesh and yet you don't, you don't see that with your eye. The closest you come to seeing with your eye is the biological reality of a child who's born. You know. um, but, but it remains a, a mystery, a sacrament, pointing us to the deepest mystery and sacrament of all, which God had had in mind and set in motion before the foundation of the world. And thus he created marriage between man and woman as a reflection of this. And this is, this is just absolutely fundamental, fundamental theocentric, Christocentric theology. And it'll, it'll change the way you, you perceive any number of biblical texts the Bible will suddenly cease to have a lot of metaphor in it. Because all the things that, if sort of we take ourselves at the center and God is out there somewhere trying to communicate to us, then, the, then almost the whole Bible becomes metaphor. Now, I think this is a complete inversion of how it should be. Because who's at the center? We're at the center. And God's out there trying to communicate to us and apparently he's having a hard time because, you know, God can't communicate to us. So it goes. And so everything becomes metaphor. I am like the light. I am like the lamb. I am uh, like the door, uh, etc. right? I mean, could you imagine Christ says, I am, I am, ego I me, the same words that he spoke to Moses from the burning bush. I am, I am the door. <clears throat> Excuse me, Mr. Christ, I don't think you actually are a door. After all, you're not made of wood and you don't have a brass handle. I <laughs> How would you respond to that? How do you respond to that? So, so what do you see rather? What do you see rather? You see the scriptures reveal that before the foundation of the world, God is who God is. Christ is who Christ is. And he has in mind this plan to bring about a bride of Christ that the two may become one for all eternity. Okay, there's, there's the baseline. This is what God has in mind. And that the human beings that he creates in Genesis would one day rise and grow into children of God, sons of God, a people made into his own image. The mistake, I think, is, or at least one of the fundamental mistakes, is to assume that that action is somehow complete when he creates Adam and Eve. If that action were complete when he creates Adam and Eve, it would be unthinkable that they fell to Satan. Christ is the express image of the invisible God, and it's unthinkable that he falls to Satan. Adam and Eve aren't there yet. We're not there yet, obviously. So what does God have in mind? He has, he has all of this in mind. And then, and then what does he do? He creates a world that reflects this reality. Shepherds care for sheep, not by way of metaphor, but because he is truly is shepherd. And we are sheep. And the physical manifestations of those things are simply the expression and outpouring of that, that we might see it written in creation. But it's different than saying that that's metaphor. I think it's profoundly different. Because you're saying that before, before there ever is such a thing as a shepherd, the Lord is shepherd. Before there ever is such a thing as a wooden door with a brass handle, the Lord is door. He is the essence of what it means to be open. 
or to be shut. It's essential and fundamental to who God is. And so on. And we could go on down the line. The point being, then, that, that marriage as such created in the beginning is to be a reflection of this deeper plan that God had, that uh, the, the wedding of the Lamb and His bride, the church, would take place at the climax and culmination, and the, the fruit of that, the offspring of that, would be the sons of God, the revelation of the sons of God for all eternity. None of this, by the way, requires a fall into sin. Not even the incarnation requires a fall of God into sin. This is the way that folks as early as Irenaeus in, in the early church and up to and through Luther himself in the Genesis lectures, they, they take it this way, that this climax of which we are beginning to read in Revelation uh, was going to take place whether there was a fall or not. This was always the trajectory. This is always the plan. This was, and the fact that we fell away from this simply means that we needed to be restored to it. Now, on account of our sin, that's going to change shape. It's going to change shape in the way of a blood atonement. It's going to change shape in the way of sin needing to be uh, blotted out. Uh, but it's still going to happen. It's still going to happen. Such a beautiful way in thinking that way that, that nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing can thwart, not sin, not death, not the devil, not anyone else. Nothing can thwart God's plan. Even in the absolute worst case scenario, the entire race rebels against him. He's not going to allow that to thwart his plan. All right. Well, I'm sorry to, to labor too lengthily on this, on this part, but all of this hidden in the marriage of the Lamb. Okay? And they're rejoicing because as soon as the prostitute is cast out, the bride is seen once more. And so we see the antithesis or the contrast between this prostitute and the bride. Between sexual immorality and sexual faithfulness or fidelity. And then, of course, that being a type for uh, idolatry versus faith in God. Yeah, his bride has made herself ready. And that's active language. We shouldn't shy away from it. I think it's patently ridiculous when people say, some, say like, God should repent us. Or, uh, yeah, or, or God should faith us. Simply, why do I think it's patently ridiculous? Because the scriptures don't speak that way. The scriptures speak actively. Are we trying to out-gospel God here? I mean, the scriptures speak in active language all the time. It was granted her, there's the grace, there's the sola gratia, it was granted her to clothe herself, active language. Who are, who are um, these coming out of the great tribulation? These are they who were washed, passive? No, these are they who have washed, active, have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So it can be sola gratia, and yet we don't need to modify all of the Holy Spirit's wisdom in order to fit that principle and point. There's nothing wrong with, express, with holding to sola gratia and expressing human action. The bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So who grants this? God. 
It's monergism. It's gift. We give him the glory, verse 7. And yet there's an activity involved. You simply can't, you simply can't get away from that unless you want to correct the Holy Spirit. Good luck. All right, verse 9. And the angel said to me, yes. All right. Yes, thank you, Pastor. Um, it seems that there's no room in this for the double election uh, uh, of Calvin and uh, that ilk. Uh, can you comment on that? Because it seems pretty, uh, um, for those who accept, all-inclusive. It's for everyone. Right. Yes. I, I mean, that's absolutely the case. And we're going to see the we're going to see the cosmic aspect of that as we see that it's the embracing of the dwelling place of man is uh, the dwelling place of God. It, this, like what we're going to see is it doesn't say the dwelling place of God is with the elect. Now, in a sense, in a sense, that's true. OK, you can make that true. But that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is the dwelling place of God is with man. And what we're going to see is the entire cosmos renewed, right? Not like this portion and that portion. Not like just Israel and everybody has to come there. Um, what we're going to see is the whole creation made new. And so, I mean, this is, this is the thing that, that really fundamentally proves that the atonement is for all. I mean, this thing it just breaks the limited atonement in half. Is the fact that at the end, everyone is raised from the dead. Even the unbelievers, even the people destined for darkness, they're raised in their bodies. That, that's how universal, as universal as the sin of Adam is and the consequence of that sin, death, so universal is the atonement of Christ and the consequence of that atonement, which is the reversal of death. I mean, that, that alone. And then you just see those, like, not in dogmatic terms, the way Paul lays it out, but you see that just in terms of the, the, the motif, the genre, the imagery that is used, where what is envisioned is, is what is obviously the whole cosmos and all humanity with it. I mean, except for those that reject. But I even think the scriptures speak that way. Some of the texts that people use to, you know, very foolishly to try to push forward universalism, this idea that everybody is saved. Really those, really, those texts are there because of the cosmic nature and scope. This is what God desires. This is what he's done. This is what he's worked. To where people who reject that and opt out of that, it, it's like in those texts, it isn't even, it isn't even registering because it's not God's intent, you know, that they would depart and, and go into the fiery abyss prepared for the devil and his angels is almost viewed from this angle, like almost surprising. Like, why on earth would you do that? That wasn't that wasn't intended. That wasn't the point. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna see that in spades, Bob. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, the cosmic scope of Christ's work. And his invitation to all. His invitation to all. You see that too. The bride has made herself ready. What does that mean? She wasn't ready. Oh, she wasn't wearing the wedding garment. Um, she was a sinner, to just put it plainly, right? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure with the of course, um, how, how then are these righteous deeds accomplished? As I said before, they're made righteous in, in and through Christ. And so it's not exclusive of that. It's, I would not like to use this text in opposition to sola gratia. I mean, good luck with that. But it, sh it also should be used um, to push back in the other direction 
that we are called to activity in the scriptures and active language is, is not subscriptural or sub-evangelical. All right, verse, uh, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, going back to the parable of Jesus, remember there's a, there's a king who has a son and there's a wedding feast and he sends that invitation. Who's invited? Everyone. Yeah, everyone. Really, really, you can get the sense there that like everyone who is an established citizen. <laughs> and, and who shows up out of that group? No one. <laughs> so, so then the king says, all right, go out into the highways and byways and invite everyone you see. I mean, all the, all the homeless and misfits and ne'er-do-wells. And they're the ones that come. That's the proper way to read this. Okay, so, so who are those who are invited? Well, in one sense, everyone. In another sense, um, in a narrower sense, what might be referred to as those who actually end up coming. Remember in that story that Jesus tells, even those that are called from the highways and the byways, the ne'er-do-wells and homeless, and they show up, but amongst, amongst all of them that show up, there's yet one who is removed. And why is he removed? He doesn't have the wedding garment. Yeah, and look at the connection here. Look at the connection here. Um, the bride making herself ready, granted to clothe herself, the wedding garment. All right, well, the angel says directly to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I mean, there, there is the fact, that, the fact that you come to Holy Communion where the Lamb is on the altar and you partake of His body and His blood and thus become flesh of His flesh, bone of His bone, the two become one. Holy Communion is a foretaste of this wedding feast to come. The fact that, that you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Holy Communion and then Holy Communion brought to its fullest expression, which is what we're envisioning here, the end of the cosmos and the full communion of God with man. The fact that you are invited, this is God reaching into time and space and God speaking directly to you and inviting you and blessing you. And thus, I think that that's the import of, of the angels saying to John, these are the true words of God. I mean, this is actually God speaking. Actually God doing. All right, verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So beautiful. So he goes to worship the angel. What the angel is saying is so good and so wonderful and such a climactic end, such an answer to all men's sorrows. I mean, not only an answer to all of the negative of men's sorrows, but an answer to all of the positive and potential unrealized that we could not grasp because of sin and suffering and, and the curse and death. It's such a glorious, full, and complete gospel that this angel speaks that John falls down to worship him. And the angel says, no, you can't do that. And then this, this too, we get some glimpse into how the angels view us. I mean, John's a sinner. He's even wrong in an error right here. Technically idolatry. And the, yet the angel says, I am a fellow servant with you. So the angels don't look at us as second-class citizens in heaven. 
I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, well, there's, the, there's, the, there's rejoicing in heaven. There's this, this glorious vision of the marriage feast of the Lamb, both of these liturgically construed, both of these involving song and praise, both of these um, texts, again, verse 1 through 5 and then 6 through 10, uh, in many ways parallel, rejoicing, followed by the marriage. And now the image changes and shifts once more. Maybe we'll get a little ways into this. But the image changes and shifts in verse 11 when John says, then I saw. So previously he had heard and he had heard. Now he sees. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. I mean, if nothing else, that suffices to change the imagery for us so we're not blurring it together. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Wasn't that a great text? I think it was last week. That he judges not by what he hears and not by what he sees, but righteously. How on earth do you judge if you don't judge on the basis of what you hear or see? I mean, it's this great text that just pricks your ears as a, as a kid hearing that text read. You go, what on earth does that mean? But it's so, so utterly, so utterly concern, unconcerned with appearances, so utterly unconcerned with the ways of men that the righteousness is just direct revelation from God and this is how it is and how it shall be, a judgment in righteousness that truly belongs to Christ alone. You remember how Moses was set up as a judge over the people? And he was working himself so hard that I think it was his father-in-law said, hey, you got to get some help here. You can't, you can't do this. <clears throat> and then, very much underplayed in our theology, but huge motif, Old Testament and biblically, that Christ is, is the prophet greater than Moses who's come. And so he, as Moses judged to the best of his ability, was a righteous judge. Christ utterly transcends that in his judgment. He doesn't have to even hear or see. He simply knows. All right, well, you have glimpses of all those biblical themes here. Um, the judge of Israel, of course, you have the judges and that, and that seat being fulfilled by the ultimate judge, who is Christ. And then you have Moses as the judge par excellence of the people, being eclipsed, being proven a mere foreshadowing of this greater judge, who is Christ. Now, he sits on the white, he sits on the white horse here, excuse me. He sits on the white horse. And he is faithful, he is true. And he alone, that's his name. So we have another name for Christ. In righteousness he judges and makes war. Um, here too, those Christian sects that try to make pacifism a thing, how are you going to do this? How are you going to make war inherently evil when Christ himself wages it? War can't be inherently evil. It can be situationally evil can't be inherently evil. So a text like this is a major, major challenge to <clears throat> pacifism. Christ himself is pictured as one who judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head 
are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Really interesting because this, this vision carries over some of the themes of the preceding vision. You have him clothed in a robe, but that robe is dipped in blood. You have a marriage, but it's the marriage of the sacrificial lamb. And you have the armies of heaven who in this vision, like the vision before, are clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. So just as that's the church, we now see the church. So this, in, in this we glimpse what is sometimes called the church militant. The armies of heaven, by the way, and that's frequently how the angel, angels are described as the armies of heaven or the heavenly host. That's the plethros stratia of Luke's gospel where the angel you know, makes its announcement to the shepherds while they're watching their, their flocks at, by night. And then what, what comes is an entire heavenly host, which in English puts us in the wrong frame of mind because we're thinking like a whole bunch of angels carrying trays full of, filled with Christmas cookies. You know, it's what a heavenly host would be, right? Probably they're all fat little babies too with, with wings. But in, in the scriptural language, nothing could be further from the truth. These are warrior angels, and the heavenly host is the army of heaven. Um, even in our liturgy, where we say, Lord God of Sabaoth, that's not just a you know, fancy way of saying Sabbath, um, as, as in Sabbath rest. Sabaoth means armies, warrior. He's the Lord God of armies, the Lord God of, of, of war. He's a warrior. And so um, that, imagery is, that imagery is here, and we are made warriors with him, clothed in the fine linen. Um, the angels are part of that, the armies of heaven. We become part of the armies of heaven as well. We saw the conflict between the armies of heaven and the dragon already in the realm of heaven itself. And what happened? The dragon and the third that followed him are cast down. So what's going to happen here? Now the armies of heaven have come down to earth, and they're joining with the saints, and we're all joining together, and what's going to happen next? He's going to be cast out of this realm as well. And that's the moment we're all waiting for. It's the moment we're all waiting for. Christ returns. He's imaged here as riding on a white horse, faithful and true, coming to make war. He's leading the armies of heaven, of which we ourselves are part, and we are going to cast the red dragon out from the realm of earth. That then paves the way for the heavens and the earth to be made new. So that's where we're going. Okay, well, that's it for, for today. We'll see you next week. The Lord be with you.